Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Fry, renowned mathematician, a lecturer, best-selling author, and award-winning presenter of science shows across TV and radio. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Hannah. Thank you for having me. So Hannah, you're a renowned mathematician, but somebody who's really made it easy for people to approach math, to understand math, and not think of it as something scary from our grade school years. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about is that when we learn math, we think about it as something that's certain. You know, the liberal arts are something that help us to be flexible, to be imaginative. And yet math is meant to be kind of black and white. And I've heard you talk about how as we get older, we really need to start to think about math as something that's more creative, something that helps us uh, become become problem solvers, something that, that doesn't require the degree of certainty that we've learned about in, in math in, in elementary school. So I wonder if you could expand upon that thinking. Yeah, gosh, that's such a big question. Um, I think you're right, though, that um, you really instill in kids and in the adults who don't continue on with the subject, this idea that, you know, you flick to the back of the textbook and the answers are there, right? And like, <laughs> I think I think that you're right, that when you graduate from college, um, people are really sophisticated at looking at an essay, looking at a piece of writing and critiquing it and working out which bits they agree with and which bits they don't agree with, which bits are flawed logically and which bits, you know, stand stand true. And yet we at no point teach people how to do that with quantitative arguments, which just seems completely mad to me. It just seems completely bonkers to me when you've got a world that is increasingly built on these quantitative ideas. Um, the fact that people don't look at them critically. So I think for me, it would be really about starting to integrate those mathematical ideas into every aspect of the of the curriculum, you know, like there's not there's nothing that data can't touch, right? So let's say that you're doing a history class, you could look back through the data from the old Bailey, um, or, you know, some courtroom and look at how language has changed over time. Look at how people care much more about, you know, uh, crime against the person. And they used to care much more about crime of property. Um, you know, if you're doing geography, you can look at the changing populations, like how demographics shift and ebb and flow over time. I, I think that there isn't a subject that couldn't benefit from some kind of data being integrated into it. And I think it's only by doing that, by having those quantitative arguments with the sort of more traditional essay style things working hand in hand, that you'll ever start to break down this idea that maths and data and analysis is these absolute truths um, that that really do what they say they do. So we are... Uh trending into this new brand new world of algorithms taking over the universe. And uh, in your latest book, Hello World, you kind of outline some of the impacts of those algorithms. And, um, and I guess, first of all, your key principle has uh, one of them is at least that these algorithms are most effective when they work in concert with the human, and not, um, not in something that replaces the human being. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that theme. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is actually something that I learned the hard way myself um, in my sort of career as a mathematician um, and working in data science. And it's this idea that like you have to think of the human system first and design the algorithm to fit into it or design the data system to fit into it 
recognizing all of the flaws and all of the failings that humans have, um, rather than designing these things completely in isolation. Um, and I think that we see that time and time again. I mean, you know, a really simplistic example of this is about um, the, you know, how much humans have this habit of over-trusting their machines and how you have to really design the interface very carefully. There's all sorts of stories about people using their sat-nav and, uh, you know, I mean, there's one story about a group of Japanese tourists who literally drove into the ocean because, <laughs> you know, the sat-nav told them to do it. Um, and now I think the modern, more modern versions of sat-nav take into account that you can't just treat these systems in isolation. You have to think about how they interact with people. And, uh, you know, the much more modern systems essentially give you three choices, right? So it's like, do you want to go this way, this way, or this way, and show it to you on a map so that, that you avoid those mistakes of people over-trusting it, because you're taking into account the way that humans deal with uh, systems. So I think for me, it really is about, um, it's humans versus machines is kind of the wrong way to think of it. It really has to be about starting with humans first, a human centric view of technology, building your technology around it. And it's about augmenting human behavior much rather than replacing it. So I want to peel apart something you just said, which was fascinating. You you spoke about this in, in your book around trust and uh, how sometimes there's over-trust, sometimes there's under-trust, and finding that right balance is important. There was one key phrase that you said that stuck with me, which is the more that you know on a topic, the less you trust other people on that topic. I thought that that was really interesting. Um, so I wonder if you can expand upon this idea of how do we make sure that there's trust in the systems that we're developing, both trust of the people, trust of the math, trust of the algorithms in a, in a way that creates a good virtuous circle. Yeah, I think that's very true. <laughs> just I, one of the examples that I talk about in the book is this idea, the use of um, algorithms in the judicial system. And um, I, <laughs> it's quite funny because I've just I've had the opportunity to talk to lots of different audiences in the past few years. And I was talking about it once with um, I, I tend to ask audiences like, what would you trust more? Right. Like a human judge or an algorithm. And I uh, was talking to a group of, of coders, of developers, and they were like, no way would we trust the algorithm. Like, no chance. in, <laughs> No way. Like, I know how those things are built. No way. Right. But then I was talking to this public audience and uh, someone was like, I want the algorithm. They were like really firmly about it. So I went to go and ask them um, why they said that, <laughs> why they didn't trust human judges. And they said that it was because they worked for the judiciary. <laughs> Which I think tells you everything you need to know. Um, but, I, but I do think that that's, um, that is kind of interesting. It's like when you peel back the curtain and you realise just how flawed um, some of these systems are, just how like, you know, sticky plaster all over them. Um, but at the same time, it's a really difficult question about at what point do you um, hand over power to uh, an automated system? And at what point do you, you know, allow the human to override it? Because I don't think that there's a single answer. You can't say the human always has to be the backstop because humans are really flawed. And actually there are some systems where, um, you know, if you are looking for uh, the the average accuracy, as it were, like if, if let's say you're looking to in insurance, for instance, if you're looking to predict the right level um, that you should charge something at for the you're essentially assigning a probability of an event happening. If you want to minimize the error in that, I mean, sign it over to the algorithmic system as much as, as, as you can. Right. Humans are kind of quite messy in all of that. But I also think that you are 
you have these systems that are not perfect. And while they remain not perfect, while they can't quite understand nuance, while they can't quite understand context, you have to have the human involved in the loop. And, you know, I think that actually these are lessons that have been learned from the nuclear industry, nuclear power stations have really gone through this system of automation over a number of years. There's much written about it um, and about how you create that balance, that partnership between humans and machines, making sure that humans stay in the loop, um, but exploiting the things that humans can do well. Um, and I think that the airline industry is the other example with uh, autopilot and the way that that uh, the lessons that that has learned about automation and how you best create a partnership between a, a human and the computer that's flying the plane. Yeah, I wonder if you can tell us the example of the Air France uh, plane crash. And in some respects, I think that represents the exact reverse of mm. the role of a human and the role of the algorithm. Yeah, totally. So um, this is a flight that was uh, traveling from Sao Paulo to Paris. And it's kind of the middle of the night and it was very, um, you know, up in high altitude. And essentially what happened was some ice uh, froze over one of the sensors. The, so the, air, uh, the, the flight was in uh, autopilot mode and um, this error that was created by just a tiny little bit of ice uh, essentially shut off autopilot. And ordinarily it wouldn't have been that much of a problem the plane was stable there was no you know no real turbulence no no great issues surrounding the plane but the pilot who took over was very inexperienced they had grown uh you know it, it, they, they had sort of got their wings as it were in an era where autopilot was prevalent so the number of hours that they had actually spent flying a plane was vanishingly small you know uh, because autopilot was so pervasive and so capable, they just didn't have the experience to fly the plane um, as needed at that moment. And essentially what happened was that they massively overreacted. They pulled the plane up um, and then the plane essentially dropped out of the sky. They went into um, aerodynamic stores. Real tragedy. Everybody on board um, lost their lives. And as a result of that crash now, um, pilots uh, that the, the way that pilots interact with autopilot has completely changed because people are completely aware of this great irony of automation which is that the more automated you become the better your automation becomes the the less chance you have to learn those skills as a human that's running alongside the machine less chance you have to practice them and particularly if you're coming up through the ranks during that period of automation it's incredibly difficult to get the level of sophistication that's required to step in when the machine fails and you've seen some of the same similarities with respect to how tesla and autonomous vehicles are functioning as well right so it it doesn't make sense for the car to do the easy part so the human can do the hard part it makes sense for the other way around right I yeah I mean I think so I really do think so because it comes back to that idea of, of of starting with the human and working out how the technology can fill in the things the human can't do rather than just like designing this swanky bit of kit and then being like right off you go off let's stand back and view it objectively and off it goes into the world because the thing that humans aren't very good at doing is like you know performing under pressure for one thing not very good at it um we're not very good at paying attention and uh, and I think that when you, as we have seen with some of the really failed experiments of driverless cars, where you set up the system so that you have the car doing the easy bit, as you said, right, the car's doing the driving, holding the wheel straight, doing all the pedals and so on, the human is expected to just sit back and watch <laughs> and nothing happens and it's very boring 
And so their mind wanders. And then if something does happen and they need to step in, you're expecting them to perform at their absolute best, just at the moment when the pressure is the highest, just at the moment when it matters the most, and at the moment when their attention is elsewhere. And that is just not a situation that is ever going to end well. And I mean, I think the flip side of the the equation is that actually testers are incredibly safe. Um, you know, when you have this system operating in the background, uh, I, I mean, I drive a Tesla, I have it in chill mode. Um, that's the sort of driver I am. <laughs> um, like, I, I think that when the human is doing the, the, the driving and it's the, the machine that's the backstop, this machine that's the guardian, I think these things are incredibly safe. And I know that there are some people who say you shouldn't look at those deaths because they are unusual, right? Like those deaths are unusual, um, those driverless deaths are unusual. And that's why they make the news and you can't count them. It's kind of a very utilitarian approach to this. But I don't think that's the right way of looking at this. I think that you have to take them into account because it's the way that systems are designed, right? It's the way that you consider that interaction between human and machine that results in those outcomes. And that's the stuff that you have to think about when you're designing and building that interface. So let's take a peek into the future of these algorithms. And uh, you did a BBC piece recently about this, the city of Bristol and, uh, and the idea of a smart city, a truly smart city where there are sensors that can detect what people, what people are doing, what they need. Um, tell us a little bit about that experiment and what people have learned from it. Mm, yeah. Uh, my favorite bit, actually, about that city um, experiment was they have a house in Bristol that is linked up to everything you can possibly imagine. So, you know, when you open and close a fridge, a uh, <laughs> little data point detects it. You know, when you turn on and off a light, uh, there's humidity sensors, there's motion detectors, there's, I mean, there's everything you can possibly imagine. Um, but the idea behind this system is that, okay, what if... Um, you have a relative who um, is perhaps an elderly relative or somebody with maybe severe depression, somebody who who sort of needs that helping hand or, or that kind of that guardianship, I guess, um, but someone who wants to maintain their independence. Are there like very simple bits of data that you can use that can help to make sure that they're safe without feeling like an invasion of privacy? So partly as a result of this work that was done in Bristol, a separate company up in Manchester has been doing this work. Um, they're called House. They're really amazing. And all they take is um, rather than the whole like motion, you know, all of this stuff when you switch on the kettle, etc. All they look at is the number of 15 minutes uh, of activity that happens in a 24 hour period. So they're, all, they're counting is like there's another 15 minutes where activity was happening. And from that data alone, you can tell an incredible amount, right? You can tell um, if somebody isn't sleeping because, you know, they're wandering in the house, they're turning on lights and all sorts and, you know, um, using electricity. You can tell if somebody has maybe had a fall uh, because they're not using electricity where they ordinarily would do. And with just this really like, I mean, it's barely even a breadcrumb of data. It's just like the slightest bit of data. Um, you can create this system that really can support people as they maintain their independence. And I think there's something really lovely about that idea that sometimes when it's done right, more technology can actually help us to feel more human rather than less. I think there's something really positive about that. 
So one of the things that I like about some of your writing is that you try to uh, put some practical examples uh, in terms of how to make some simple calculations about what to do. What are your best odds? And one of my favorite examples of this is in your book, The Mathematics of Love. Uh, you use the optimal stopping theory to figure out when people should stop dating. So you say about 37% of the way through your dating pool, you should just settle down with whoever's there. Uh, do you want to explain that a little sure. bit to, to our listeners? This is very firmly with my tongue placed in my cheek, right? So this is like, Fair enough. Um, okay. But I, but the thing is, is that I, I know that this sounds like a, a contradiction in a lot of ways, but I do think it's possible for two things to be true, for there to be total limits on what you can possibly predict and simultaneously for data and analytics and mathematical ideas to be the best possible weapon you have at like working out what to do in in the future scenario so okay this idea this optimal stopping theory it's based on um it's based on the idea that you uh, have a number of people that you'll potentially meet in your dating life, right? So say you start dating when you're like 15 and you want to be settled down by the time you're 35, say, right? Just to, to pick some numbers. So there'll be people who come up and some of them will be better for you than others. And in theory, you could sort of, um, an imaginary version of your future self, look back and work out which ones were best and sort of rate them, give them the score, so the idea is what is the best strategy that you can use to maximize your chances of ending up with the one person who was who was the best of all. Given that, as soon as you like cash in and say, right, you're my life partner, I'm done now. You can't sort of look ahead to see who you could have had. Um, but you also sort of, once you get rid of someone, once you're like, no, we're done, you know, you can't go back later and say, actually, I really wanted you. Because, you know, people gen- generally... I- <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've tried it, but it generally doesn't work, right? Like, I, dump, I dumped you five years ago and I've changed my mind. You really were the best for me. Um, so the, the strategy that you should use, mathematically speaking, if you set up the problem like that, is um, that you should spend a few years in the beginning just kind of playing the field, not having, not taking dating life too seriously. And then after 37% of your dating life has passed, right? So it's one over E, actually, if you're particularly interested. Um, One over E of your dating life has passed. What you should then do is uh, the next person who comes along, that is better than anyone you've met before. That's the person that you should cash in your chips with and be like, right, you're the one for me. This isn't guaranteed to work, by the way. This only works, what you know, about a, a third of the time. So um, it's quite possible that you, uh, you know, the best person could come along in that that first thirty seven percent of your dating window. You know, they could come along when you're sixteen, and you could be like, right, see you later. Um, and then I'm afraid you, you know, no one will ever come along who's better. So you're destined to spend the rest of your life alone. <laughs> um, or, uh, or the opposite could be true, which is that you could cash in just immediately before the ultimate person for you came along. So, you know, this is, there's no, there's no guarantee of success. It's not here. foolproof. It's not well, foolproof. I think, I think that the thing that uh, most gamblers understand, for instance, is that it's not about certainty. Mm. And, and I think that this is something that a lot of people that are in the data space in the corporate world. Can you hear the ice cream van outside my window? <laughs> really yes, sorry. it's making me so happy. <laughs> that's okay let's let's carry on because that's amazing actually forgive me I, I thought it was actually a clock for a second i was like what time is it um, it's ice cream time that's what time yeah, it is. excellent um so so i think the point that you're bringing up here is around people's often inability to deal with uncertainty at all 
And so if you think about gamblers, for instance, they understand that the play that they're making just gives them the best odds of success. But they don't basically say that the strategy or the math is incorrect because that particular instance doesn't work out. And I, I think that there's something important there for the business community too. Do you, have you found successful strategies to explain to people things around that, how to understand that you know there's a difference between a specific instance of something and the best chance and overall and how overall strategies still make the most sense? It's so hard. It's so hard. I don't know what it is about the way that we're wired that really struggles with that concept. And I do think you're right that this is something that people tend to do. Um, they, they struggle with that idea of the difference between long-term success and a, a sort of one-shot probability. But I don't think it's necessarily just people. I think that even, you know, probability theorists you know, this is quite a difficult idea. What do you mean by a probability, uh, by assigning a probability to an event that will only happen once? And what does it mean to be right about that? How do you ever verify that? Um, so I think, yeah, sometimes it's, sometimes I think where it, it's like a strategy that's in the long term and you're doing it over and over again. Um, I think you're, you're right that the gambler's analogy works best. But then I think there are other times where actually I'm not sure the probability itself necessarily makes sense. So I'd like to talk a little bit about game theory. Uh, you do a lot of exploration in your research around how game theory helps us to inform how people make decisions, but sometimes we actually make bad decisions. And in particular, you talk about the prisoner's dilemma. And for those of you that can't remember this uh, from your childhood days, the prisoner's dilemma explains a situation in which two prisoners are, are captured. And each prisoner is told that they will receive no punishment if they rat out the other person, but the other person doesn't rat them out. And what in fact happens is that the psychology will dictate that both people will rat each other out, despite the fact that the best outcome probably would have been if both of them had stayed quiet. So I wonder if you could explain, Hannah, for us how that kind of thinking is coloring how we experience other uh, parts of our lives. Okay, so the classic example with uh, the prisoner's dilemma is doping in sport. <laughs> so, all right, here's the situation. You are in a perfectly clean sport. Everybody is doing the right thing and it's a completely fair competition. And then you're in that situation and you realise if you just dope a little teeny, teeny, tiny bit, you're going to have an advantage. So the incentive for you as an individual is to dope, right? Is to just, I mean, okay, rules, etc. <laughs> trying to stop you from doing that. Sure, but sure. Let's imagine that you can do it in the way that you get away with it. But the thing is, it's not just you who's in that situation. Your competitors are also in that situation. So it's then an incentive for them to just dope a tiny little bit more than you. Um, and so on this goes and on and on and on and on with everybody just in a little race with each other to dope just that little bit more until you find yourself at sort of the the, um, the ceiling of the possibility of how far you can dope and still get away with it. And everybody's there. And now you're back into a complete fair <laughs> system once again, where everybody's again on a level playing field. But the problem is, in that scenario, is you don't want to be the one who isn't doping when everybody else is, because that's the worst outcome of all. You being fair, you playing fair against people that are cheating is like, I mean, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. 
So what you end up with is this situation which is best for everybody would be if really genuinely nobody doped, right? There wouldn't be any health consequences. It's everyone watches a fair competition. Everybody would just be happy if nobody doped. And that's what's called the Pareto optimal point, right? Everybody is the best situation for everybody. The whole situation is best for everybody. Everybody wins, right, in that situation. The problem is, is that because you have every single individual in the system who is naturally by their own, by their own nature, going to be looking out for their own self-interest, that Pareto optimal point is completely unstable. And so you end up at something that's called the Nash equilibrium, which is where everybody is doping, which essentially means that no one person can do anything to make things better for themselves. And I think that that scenario, that's essentially a a hand wavy version of of what's known as the prisoner's dilemma. But you also see that scenario very um, in in the most profound way in climate change, essentially, um, which is where the best thing for everybody would be if we just took this seriously and uh, we cut down on our own emissions. uh, We, you know, really took the future of our planet seriously um, but because actually, you know what, it doesn't, I don't really notice the effect if I just, uh, I don't know, leave that light on upstairs or just, I don't know, eat another beef burger or, or whatever it is. Um, and so actually we've ended up in this situation, which is, uh, you know, that everybody's sort of out for themselves. And as a result, everybody loses. And that's something that's known as the, the tragedy of the commons. Everyone knows we're not doing the right thing. But there isn't the incentive for us to change our own personal behavior while everybody is completely freely doing whatever they want to do. So as we wrap this up, I wonder if you could help us understand three things that you think are fundamentally changing the world with respect to data and analytics. Access to massive computing power essentially means that we can run analyses that were just completely beyond the realms of even imagination only a few short years ago. Um, The statistical grunt that you have now to handle gigantic data sets is, I think, really genuinely world-changing. I think number two is small devices everywhere. And when you put those two things together, you have this unimaginably rich view of the entire world um, or soon to be at all points in time. So I think those are really big fundamental shifts, massive fundamental shifts, irreversible shifts that um, will go on to change the world, I think, more than we can possibly imagine right now at the beginning of it. Um, And the third thing, actually, you know what? I'll tell you what I think is a big game changer. I think this current argument over um, privacy versus innovation. I think that's a really big one. Mm. And I think particularly this this move that actually as a consumer, you are now being given choice about uh, your privacy. I think that's something that's going to be um, very interesting and a real game changer. Well, well, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a tremendous pleasure. It's been really great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Hannah Fry is a renowned mathematician, a lecturer, best-selling author, and award-winning presenter of science shows across both TV and radio. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Data at our fingertips. Citizens and employees with math and data literacy skills to help them make better decisions. Confidence, even without certainty. Thank you, Hannah Fry, for helping us conceive of a future of technology and algorithms that helps make us smarter, smarter, 
guide us through important decisions and help us be, well, more human. 